All right, so we're gonna kick into this, uh, this new teaching series that I have, and I've been really looking forward to it, um, actually through our last series that we just dealt with as we went through the first four of the Ten Commandments. In my mind, I was really looking forward to this one. And uh, the heartbeat of what we're gonna talk about here at Eastside for a few weeks goes back to just a few weeks earlier when we had a, a thing here called Student Takeover Weekend. And our students kind of took over the, the service that weekend. They did a great job. And the end of that service, if you were here or if our online our gang, you were watching online, you saw at the end of the service, our middle school pastor, uh, Silas Crowell, was speaking, and he ended his message talking about a guy named Jeremy. And, and what Jeremy was was a real dude in Silas's life who made an impact in his life and had a great impact on Silas really getting real with Christ and eventually Silas moving into a serving Christ, full-time capacity as an occupation. And so Silas told us about Jeremy and how Jeremy impacted his life. Now, here's something that I've seen through the years, and I hear this happening a lot here at Eastside, right now in the season that we're in, I hear you all talking about this, and that is every once in a while, something happens when we're together, when we gather together in this room. And it might be during worship, sometimes it happens during the teaching, but there's something that is said or done that, and, and I, don't know, I don't even know how really to describe it, but the power of the Holy Spirit has kind, of a, has kind of an impact moment in something that somebody said or something that we saw up here. And that happened when Silas told us about Jeremy. Because everybody has started talking about Jeremy around here. That we all have that, that, that person in our life, that guy or that gal who had an impact on who we are in Jesus right now. And so people just said, you know, here's my Jeremy, here's my Jeremy, and that person was my Jeremy, and this person is being a Jeremy right now. And I think it was a Holy Spirit moment where God wanted us to think about that. In our own staff meetings now, we start them out by picking one of our staff and we say, tell us about your, your Jeremy. And man, we've heard stories about, about parents and grandparents and brothers and sisters and, and pastors and friends and, 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 and co-workers and teammates. We've heard these stories about all these Jeremys who've had an impact in these people's lives. And now they're sitting around a table serving Christ in a full-time capacity because of Jeremy. I, I was fortunate enough that I had a lot of Jeremy's in my life, uh, probably because I needed more than just one to get into this thick head of mine. And one of those Jeremy's was named Mike. And Mike had an impact on my life that I would not be talking to you right now if he had not been my Jeremy. Mike right now is the superintendent of Carmel Clay Schools, the public school system just north of Indianapolis in the Carmel area. One of the most powerful, important educational jobs in the state of Indiana. My Jeremy named Mike, that's his job now. But that all pales in comparison to a couple of 16-year-old goobers sitting on his porch swing a long, long time ago when he led me to Jesus. You know, I think there's times, I really do, and I hope this happens. I hope this happens 
uh, in the next day or so in your life. I think there's times when we ought to go back to those Jeremy's and we ought to tell them how grateful we are for what they did in our life. And so I did that last Tuesday. Last Tuesday was my uh, 47th anniversary of being baptized. I know like, I look like I'm in my 30s, but it was 47 years ago last Tuesday when I got baptized. And man, I woke up that day and I sent, I sent a text to Mike. And I said, man, I, I don't even know how to thank you. I mean, look what God has done through all the years because you spoke to me and invested in me all those years ago. I think there's times when I ought to say, man, thank you for what you did. Now, I want you to take that. I want you to watch me here, okay? I want you to watch this. Because we're, we're moving toward Easter here. And normally what we do in this church is we try to get ready for Easter. We just don't show up on Easter weekend here. We try to prepare it. And we will often take three, four, five weeks before it, and we'll just kind of muster it up, man. We'll teach some things that make Easter really, really important here at Eastside. And so this year, this year we chose, this is what we're going to do, is what we're going to do this year is we're going to talk about Jeremy. But we're going to make a twist about Jeremy. We're not going to talk about the Jeremys in your life. We're going to talk about you becoming a Jeremy. And we're talking about how you can take your life and God can use you to make an investment in somebody, somebody in your circle of friends that years later they're gonna come back and they're gonna send a note to you because you did something in their life to get them to see the saving grace of Jesus and the life that God has, has for them. And so what we're gonna do as we build up to Easter as the weekend that most of us invite people to church and people show up. Man, it's our Super Bowl here at Eastside. We're gonna teach you how to be a Jeremy. We're gonna teach that to you. And so I wanna encourage you that you're here every week leading up to Easter because there are critical pieces that teach people how to be one of those folks. Now what we're gonna talk about this weekend is, is gonna come totally out of the blue. And you're not gonna see this coming at all, but this is something that has to happen inside of you to become a Jeremy. And I want that to just kinda of get heavy with you here for a second, because every one of us in this room has somebody in our life, probably a number of people in our life, that we love with all of our heart, and we know that they're not where they need to be with God, and we'd give anything for them to have what we have right now. Does anybody, anybody know anybody like that, huh? Y'all know somebody like that? Okay, in order for you to be that Jeremy, somebody you live with, somebody you work with, somebody you go to school with, in order for you to be that Jeremy, here is the beginning place. And this is critically important. Gonna come out of the blue, you never saw this coming. But there has to be a belief system, a belief structure. We're gonna talk, talk about a principle, a concept that you believe so strongly in that it is deep-seated into the barrels of your heart and it controls how you treat people and how you see people, but it is inside of you burning. And when that happens inside of you, you cannot help but to be a Jeremy. And here's the reason why a lot of people aren't Jeremy's. 
why a lot of Christians say, that's not my deal, man. I don't do that kind of stuff. The reason is because this belief system that we're gonna talk about tonight has not got down inside and messed with them. And I wanna show you today from the Bible how that's gotta get in you. Now let me show you what the belief system is and then we're gonna spend a little time and we're gonna talk about it uh, this evening. And I want you to see this. Let's put this up here. And 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20 talks about the importance of being that Jeremy. Look at it. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. You know what that says? Is that God reaches people through Jeremy's. That's, how that, that's what that means. And every study we've ever done to find out about this, when we ask people in Christendom, man, why are you where you're at in Christ? 75 to 85% of all Christian people say, here's why I'm here, because of a Jeremy in my life. And so the Bible talks about that. Now, how can you be that? I want to show this belief system that I want us to get into our heart, and it's going to come out of the blue, so watch me. That I believe this. That hell is a real place of real torment where real people will live for a really long time, as in forever. And when that gets down into you and it really begins to possess you, you start to understand without qualification that there's a lot of people that are going to end up in heaven someday, but not everyone. Not everyone will go. And when that gets down in you, you can't help but be a Jeremy. Now, I wanna talk about that. I wanna show you how that comes up in scripture about the reality of hell. Now, I didn't promote that this week that we're gonna talk about it, because who here would be here tonight if you knew, all right, we're gonna go talk about hell, okay? But that's gotta get down into your bones. And I want to go a roundabout way to show you that in the Bible. And I promise you that if you stay with me at the end of that, you're going to feel such a compulsion to be a Jeremy to somebody in your life that you're not going to be able to hold it back. But you got to go with me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to geek you out for a second, okay? I'm going to geek you out. I'm going to take you to a place right now where you're going to think that you are in a university class somewhere. That's what it's going to feel like for a few minutes. But I'm going to ask you to hang with me because I want to present something of kind of an intellectual thought that's going to come around and show you why this belief structure is so important in your life. So stay with me, okay? You're going to be tempted to fall asleep. I'm going to make it as interesting as I can. Uh, where's my buddy, uh, Chaz Waters? He's one of our newest guys on staff. Where's he at? Is Chaz here? There you are, brother. Because I asked you today, you going to pay attention? He goes, man, I'm going to love this. So he's probably going to be the only person awake, but the rest of you hang in there, okay? So watch this. Watch this. This is really important. I've, I've played with this a few times in my preaching through the years. I've never done it to the depth that I'm about to right now. I want to show you something called this. Textual criticism. Now, just being able to say that makes you sound smart, okay? What in the world is textual criticism? Watch this. Textual criticism is a very detailed science that proves the authenticity of every verse in the Bible. 
And here's what I mean by that. Let's take a, let's take a verse that we all know, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten. Y'all, y'all, know this, y'all know the verse. So here's the question. Do we know without any doubt that John, who wrote that in the Bible, that he wrote John 3.16. Is it authentic? Is it accurate? Do we absolutely know that? Now, what textual criticism does, it is a detailed science that will show that to you and will answer that question. I'm going to beg of you to, to stay with me here, okay? Because it's going to come back to what I want you to, want you to hear and what you're going to believe. So, is John 3.16 authentic? Is it accurate? Is it real? Did John actually write the words of John 3.16? Did that actually happen? Well, there's a really simple way to find that out. You take the book of John, which is in the Bible, and John was an apostle. He was the best friend of Jesus, and he wrote a biography about his friend Jesus. And that biography that he wrote is in your Bible. It's right there. It's the book of John. It's 21 chapters long. And so if we want to know, did John really write John 3.16, let's just go get the actual document that John wrote, and let's see if John 3.16 is in it. So let's go get the letter. Now, back in that days, they wrote on paper called parchment, and so John wrote 21 chapters on this parchment. So let's just go find the parchment that he wrote. It is referred to as an original manuscript. In other words, the one John wrote. Let's go find it and see if John 3.16 is there. Here's the problem with it. We ain't got the original manuscript. We don't know where it's at. We've never found it. It was written about 2,000 years ago, and this might be a little disheartening to you, but when you open up your Bible, John, and read those 21 chapters, the actual paper that John wrote, we don't have it. We can't find it. It's probably been destroyed. It's over 2,000 years old. All that we have, make sure you catch this, all that we have are handwritten copies that are really old. We have thousands and thousands of copies of scribes who would write because they didn't have a Xerox machine. It wasn't working that day, and they wrote them. And we've got thousands and thousands of those. In fact, if you think about the New Testament, John is one book. There are 27 books in there. So there are 27 original manuscripts where these authors actually wrote it on parchment. You know how many of the 27 we have? None. We don't have any. All that we have are these these handwritten copies of those manuscripts. That's all we possess right now. That's all we have. And we found thousands through archaeological digs all over and primarily in the Middle East. Some of you might remember remembering school when they taught you about a thing called Dead Sea Scrolls. And the Dead Sea Scrolls were found between 1946 and 1956. They were found in what was called the Qumran Caves just east of Jerusalem. They are the best scrolls we've ever found. They're all kinds of New Testament pieces. So here's what textual criticism does. Everybody, please hear me, because it's going to come back, I promise you, okay? I know you feel like you're in school. I know Chaz is the only dude paying attention right now. But stay with me, okay? Here's what textual criticism does. It takes all those all those pieces of handwritten copies that we have, and we put them all together, and we date them, 
and we, we master them together and we make a decision about every verse in the New Testament. Is it authentic or did some scribe add it later on? So take John 3.16 as an example. Let's say we take every little piece that we have of John 3.16 and we lay them all out and let's just say we put all those that are somewhere between 100 AD and 500 AD. Let's put them all together, we've dated them. So the first 500 years after Jesus left, we got them all looking, and we're looking at the, the, the text of the, the copies of the book of John, and John 3.16 is nowhere there. None of them have John 3.16. But then we take these other uh, parchments that we found, we put them all together, and they're dated from about 500 to 1,000. And so 1,000 years, people have been copying the Word of God. And so we put all these together, and we find out at about 500, John 3.16's in all these. And you're smart enough to know what happened, is John 3.16 was added by somebody about the year 500. Now, I'm just making that up about John 3.16. That's not necessarily true. It's an example. But that's what textual criticism does. And so textual criticism from a biblical standpoint looks at every verse in the Bible and says, is this authentic? Can you trust this? And they've evaluated. It's an enormous, complicated, mind-blowing science. Now, here, here's what they do, and I, I find this just fascinating, and um, at this point, I probably lost most of you. Chad's starting to play games on his phone, probably. I'm probably the only one here. So what textual criticism does is it takes, and this is just craziness, it takes every verse in the Bible and it gives a rating to it. Let me show you the ratings. There is what is called A rating, and that is we are virtually certain that that is original. It is accurate. That's actually what John wrote. We, we have no doubt. That's it. We are certain virtually. It can also have a B rating, which means we have some degree of doubt. So I like to look up this and say, man, I would bet my mother's right arm this is accurate. B says, I think it is, but I wouldn't bet my mom's right arm. Now, they, some get C, okay? And a C rating is there is considerable doubt. I doubt that that's original. And then the worst rating you get is D, and D is there is very high doubt that that's original. That probably was not written by that author. It was added later on. Now, I told you all that. I know you feel like you're in a science class here, but I told you all that because I want you to hear this. If you took the New Testament, all 27 books of this ancient writing over 2,000 years old, if you took it all, listen carefully to this, 97% of the New Testament has received an A rating. There's not another writing in human history that is that authoritative from an ancient standpoint. And of the 3% that doesn't get an A rating, almost all of the 3%, almost all of it, are places where it really doesn't matter. As an example, did he write Jesus Christ or did he write 
Christ Jesus. We don't know which order he wrote it. They're in both all the manuscripts. And so the reality is, is what we're saying is that you can trust the authority of the Bible more than you can trust any other thing that has ever been written by any other person in all of human history. That's the power of the word of God. Now, why in the world did I tell you any of that because of a message we're trying to teach people how to be a Jeremy. And we said in order to be a Jeremy, down into the heart of our soul is this conviction that there is a place called hell. And that place of hell is a horrible, horrible, painful place that a lot of people will live forever and ever and ever and ever. What in the world does textual criticism have anything to do with that? Well, let me show you. One of the places in the Bible where the awfulness of hell can be seen in a passage that is as clear as anything else we have in the Bible is Mark chapter 16, verse 16. And I want to put it up here and I want you to read it. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. But whoever does not believe. See, we're talking about people that are in our circle of influence that are not where they need to be with God, okay? That's who we're talking about. We're talking about maybe somebody you live with or work with or go to school with or is on your team. That's who we're talking about. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. Now, in order to understand the power of Mark 16 from the words of Jesus, I want you to understand with the New Testament when it talks about being condemned. And this is crazy important. The word condemned, I'm going to pronounce it. Let's go back into our university class here for a second. It is pronounced with this word. I think I brought it. Catacrino, that's what it is. And so what Jesus said is if you don't believe, you will be catacrino. What in the word is catacrino? Well, it is what is called as a compound word. There's two different words that are put together, so let's play with it a little bit. The root of the word is the word crino, and it means that you're guilty. It is a legal term that somebody's been on trial, the evidence has been brought, and the judge said, based on everything that's been said, you, son, are guilty. And that's what crino means, is that forever anybody doesn't believe in Jesus Christ, they are crino, they're guilty. But that's not what he wrote. He wrote catacrino. And when katakrino is added, the prefix, it changes the meaning of the word. Because when kato is thrown in, what kato talks about is the punishment. So let's put that up there. What he's talking about when you are katakrino is that you have found, been found to be guilty and here is the punishment that will be yours. And so the power of Mark 16, 16, the power of this verse is that when you are not connected with God, when you are not walking with God, listen, Christian people who want to be Jeremy's, this has got to get down in you. 
That when any of our associates, any of our relationships around us are not set with God, Jesus didn't say, they will be crino. He didn't say that. He said, they will be catacrino. They will be guilty and given an awful punishment that is beyond our recognition. What's he talking about? He's talking about hell. And so here we've come as Christians here, kind of, you know, excited, getting ready for Easter. We want our friends and family to know Jesus, man. What do we got to do to make that happen? How can that happen? It begins with this seed inside your belly, understanding the awful future that awaits those that you and I love if they don't walk with God. Kata Krino. What a powerful verse in the New Testament. But here's the problem with it. Mark didn't write it. Textual criticism gives it a D. Mark never said that. And that's why we had to spend all that time understanding how Bible scholars evaluate the authenticity of Scripture. And here's what we know about the book of Mark is we lost the ending of it somewhere. It just abruptly stops right in the middle of the story. And so whatever did compel Mark to write the ending somewhere at some point, the ending was lost and we don't have it. And what happened is somewhere down the line, many years later, a priest or a scribe is writing, copying Mark chapter 16, and they see the abruptness of the ending, and so they add into it an ending that they would have assumed that Mark wrote. It's like you taking a book that doesn't have its final chapter, and so you write the final chapter. And so Mark 16, 16 was never written by Mark. And Jesus may never have said it. Now, what do you do with places in the Bible that get a D rating? Well, most of the time we don't put them in our Bibles. But if you grab your Bible and open up the book of Mark, you get to the end of it and you say, dude, it's there. They put, a, they put a D rating in the Bible. And here's when we do that. We do that when the things that are being taught in that D rated verse or that D rated passage, they are maintained in the scripture if the concepts and truths behind them are taught clearly in other parts of the Bible. And so here we have Jesus making this almost breathtaking statement about hell awaiting those who are not walking with God. And the reality is, everybody catch this, Jesus talked about hell more than 70 times. He talked about hell more than any other person in the Bible talked about hell. The reason that we held on to Mark 16, 16 in the Bible is not because Mark wrote it, because Mark didn't write it. The reason we keep it in, it is a summary of what Jesus said over and over and over and over in his life. 
And so let me give you just a few examples. You remember when Jesus told this story? In Luke chapter 16, fascinating story. Hope you go read it. It starts out this. In hell, where he was in torment. And he then describes somebody in hell. Those are the words of Jesus. Notice another story that he told us in Matthew chapter 25. And sometime open up 25th chapter of Matthew and read towards the end of it. And Jesus is talking about somebody. And God says to him, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Why is Mark 16, 16 something that we ought to listen to even though it's not original? Because Jesus said the same thing over and over, eternal fire. If that's not enough to catch your breath, let me show you one more thing that Jesus said of the 70. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. He's being metaphorical. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. Now hold, hold this and just, just kind of catch what we're talking about right now. You got people in your life that you would give anything for them to know the Jesus that you know. Can I be blunt? Some of you are married to some of them. Some of you, they are your brothers or your sisters or your, your parents or your children. Some of you, you work next to them every day. Some of you, you're on the same team. Some sit in the same classroom together. And there are those people all throughout our life where Jesus emphatically taught a horrifying ending of their life, catacrino. So let me ask you a real penetrating question that is meant for me as much as anybody in this room. Why have you not talked to them about that? And the power of the 16th verse, of the 16th chapter of Book of Mark, is there is only one way to be rescued from that horrifying future, and that is to believe that Jesus died on a cross as the punishment of my sins, and I'm baptized as the moment that I begin to live for him for the rest of my life, and that is the only way for Catacrino to be erased from your life, and so I ask you, why have you not talked to them about that? And the reason is because this belief structure has not been embedded into our soul. Because if it were, you wouldn't be able to stay quiet. Many of you will remember an old uh, magic act. I think they still do a little bit of that in Vegas in different places known as Pen and Teller. Penn Jillette, the one that talks, and Raymond Teller, the one that doesn't talk. And many of us have seen them on TV and things such as that. About a decade ago, something happened to a Penn and Teller a show. And when the show was over with, something happened to Penn. And Penn went back in his 
a hotel room, and he made basically a selfie video of the experience of what just happened to him. And the video quickly went viral, and millions and millions of people have seen this video. Many of you have seen it. But when you read Mark 16, 16, and think about, I want to be a Jeremy, this video tells us why we don't. So watch this. I want to talk to you about this. Uh, I get home from the show, and at the end of the show, as I've mentioned before, we go out and we, uh, we talk to folks and, you know, sign an occasional autograph and shake hands and so on. And there was one guy waiting over to the side in the um, what I call the hover position after I was all done. Big guy, probably about my age. And um, he had been the, um, the guy who has uh, picks the joke during our psychic comedian section of the show. Uh, so he had the props from that in his hand because we'd give those away. He had the, the joke book and the, and the envelope and the paper and stuff. And he walked over to me and he said, um, I was here last night at the show and uh, uh, I saw the show and I liked it. I wanted, and he was very complimentary about my use of language and um, complimentary about, you know, honesty and stuff. And then he said, I brought this for you. And he handed me a uh, Gideon pocket edition I thought I said from the New Testament, but I also thought it was Psalms from the New Testament, right? Or, uh, Psalms from the New, just part of the New Testament. Little book about this big, this thick, you know. He said, I wrote in the front of it, and I wanted you to have this. I'm kind of uh, proselytizing. And then he said, I'm a businessman. I'm, I'm sane, I'm not crazy. And he looked me right in the eye and did all of this. And uh, it was really wonderful. I believe he knew that I was an atheist. But he was not uh, defensive. And he looked me right in the eyes. And he was truly complimentary. It wasn't in any way, it didn't seem like empty flattery. He was really kind and nice insane and looked me in the eyes and talked to me and then gave me this Bible. And I've always said, you know, that I, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that, uh, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. And atheists who think that people shouldn't proselytize, just leave me alone, keep your religion to yourself. Uh, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. And I've always thought that, and I've written about that, and I've thought of it conceptually. But this guy was a really good guy. He was polite and honest and sane, and he cared enough about me 
to proselytize and give me a, a Bible, which had written in it a little note to me, uh, not very personal, but just, you know, like to show and so on. And then like five phone numbers for him and an email address if I wanted to get in touch. Now, I know there's no God, and one polite person living his life right doesn't change that. Uh, but I'll tell you, he was a very, very, very good man. And uh, that's really important. And with that kind of goodness, uh, it's okay to have that deep of a disagreement. I still think that religion does a lot of bad stuff, but man, that was a good man who gave you that book. That's all I wanted to say. I want you to listen to this. I want you to catch this. An atheist figured this out. To really believe in the awfulness of hell so much that it gets down inside of you and becomes a part of your soul and then not to do something about it with the people that you love? That smells a whole lot more like hate than love. And an atheist saw that. The second highest earning movie in the box office world right now is Jesus Revolution. It's a movie about the spiritual awakening in America in the 1970s. It's a fascinating movie. Um, it's fascinating that it came out about the same time as the story at Asbury and what was happening down. Isn't it funny how God works sometimes, huh? And I love the fact that we Christians taught Hollywood that we can make money on a movie without filth. Isn't that good news, huh? You don't have to have filth to make money. Now, if you've not seen the movie, I'm not going to give it away, okay? Um, there's really nothing to give away. Um, it, it's just the telling of a true story. Uh, but I, I was able to see that recently. I made, I made a few observations. Um, in my opinion, I think it kind of starts a little slow. And so if you kind of get lost at the beginning, just hang in there, man. It's going to be well worth your time. And if you're my age, uh, part of the thing that you like the most is you were reminded of the clothes that we wore in the 70s and our hairstyles and the cars we drove. Man, we were cool, dude, weren't we? Uh, we, had it, we had it happening. I'm just going to tell you right now, they quit making music after the 70s. They just quit. I don't know what this stuff is, but that was music, and the soundtrack of this film is awesome. But, but something happened to me a few times in the movie, and it just kind of struck me, I didn't see it happening, is that there was somebody up in the, the ceiling somewhere, and they were dropping salt from the ceiling, and it was falling into my eyes and was messing me up. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Um, man, I was just sniffling and sucking and all that kind of stuff going on. And it happened whenever a Jeremy embraced somebody that they loved. I want to tell you about one of them. If you've not seen the movie, you need to go see it for this scene. The scene is this little church where the revival has come to, and they are just being overrun. I mean, the place is crammed full of hippies who found Jesus. And they're just all in there, and they're happy, and they're dancing, and, you know, life is good, and Jesus is awesome. And the established old-timers, and there's some of us in this room, the established old-timers who built that church, 
They just couldn't take it anymore. I mean, these people didn't have shoes on. Some of them looked like they hadn't had a bath in weeks, and they were dancing when we're supposed to be reverent and quiet. And that scene just kind of zeroes in on some of those old timers, and you can see they get to the point where they're just like, I am not taking this anymore. And right in the middle of the service, they just stand up and they just start hightailing it out the back of the room. They are done and they are gone. And the hippies just, ah, they're just still going on with Jesus. The last old guy in the line to get up was a little kind of bent over, white-haired old fella. And he gets up with his buddies and they're all walking out and and he gets up and he's, he's starting to walk out too with his buddies. But the cameras zero in on him because you can tell his mind is just going a thousand miles an hour. And he kind of pauses on the way out of the church and he looks over at all these young people. And you can see it without him saying anything that he knew where they were headed and how their lives had been changed. And the old man looked at his friends going out the doors and he turned around and he went over to this side of the church and he scooted his way into the pew and he sat down and put his arms around about four hippies and his smile went ear to ear. And he chose in that moment because he knew the horror of being disconnected to God that I'm gonna be a Jeremy. And I'm telling you, one of the greatest feelings you'll ever have in your life is when you do what that old man did. Because people are counting on you to prevent an awful, awful future. Go be there, Jeremy. Father, I thank you. Um, on behalf of those of us in this room um, who had a Jeremy or two. And you know all their names. And I thank you that you pierced their heart enough that they didn't, they didn't care if it was awkward. They didn't care if they would be rejected. They didn't care if they didn't have the right words. They put their arms around us. And they pointed in the direction of somebody who could erase Katakrino from our story. Would you help us to do that? Would you get it into our soul so deep that we just can't be quiet anymore? I pray that today in the name of Jesus. Amen.